0: Well, good morning to you. As we get started, I'd like to recommend to you a book by Bill McDonald, One Day at a Time. It's a devotional, one page per day of the year, and I personally have read it. I would suggest you specifically read February 10th, February 10th. So I would uh, refer you to this on the book table. I've also read Limiting Atonement, uh, omnipotence by um, uh, David Dunlap, it's an outstanding book. Also, uh, Chris would probably not say this, but um, uh, I would like to simply reference the Ezekiel Project, a uh, couple of things. Um, I got to know Chris probably 20 years ago, maybe, and uh, your dad used to live here and moved to Kansas, and so he became part of our fellowship, and uh, Bob Schroeder. And I had the privilege and honor to uh, preach his funeral. Uh, Bob was um, uh, with us there, and so Chris would come and visit. And so that began our relationship, and we asked Chris at that time to do some work for evangelism because it was pretty clear in our assembly none of the elders were evangelists, and uh, we needed help. And that's really how you use Ephesians four, like, gifters is to equip, and so we wanted to be equipped. And so we asked Chris to come in, and then we really recognize the better half. That is, Barb really is the nuts and bolts of the whole operation, you know. <laughs> um, but, uh, but nonetheless, uh, that's how we got started. Now, over the years, I learned more and more about the Tepsi program, and, and subsequently we've gotten involved together in it. But one of the things I, I like to mention about that program is this, is that uh, uh, everything is taught with the, uh, against the backdrop of... Um, of evangelism. And so, and I, I say this uh, with, Chris uh, didn't ask me to do this, but I admire it. Uh, when they study the doctrine of, um, of the deity of Jesus Christ, the sonship of Jesus Christ, they'll, they'll go to, to John, the gospel of John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And, and Brother Chris will say, and this verse, if I can mimic him, and this verse is the one that they use for heresy, right? That was a pretty good, good invitation, right? Except I have hair, he doesn't, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and so what happened was, uh, he says, and this verse is the verse that this cult uses, and let's call him up. And, you know, they put like, what, 1-800-Mormon, you know? And so Chris stand, right there in the classroom, he calls him up makes an appointment for them to come over and then they have class with the cultists and they have the, the students are watching the debate in living color. So it's, a, it's ingenious actually. It's very ingenious. And so I really admired that and appreciate that. Well let's pray and we're going to turn our attention to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Dear Father, we come in the name of the Lord Jesus as we cannot come in any other name. We come to you looking for the God of the universe to give us what we need so desperately and that is the word that belongs to God. You authored this. You 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 had it uh, transmitted and communicated to your people and we come knowing and believing that the spirit of God, the teacher of your word will continue his teaching ministry this morning in Jesus name. Amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is where I'd like you to turn. And I'm going to read only about three to four verses. It'll be First Thessalonians chapter 5. And we'll begin reading in verse 16. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we will begin reading in verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything... Give give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil." If you were unable to be here last night, we uh, went over the context of this passage and we began to look at the phrase, quench not the spirit. Now, um, the context is, uh, has uh, uh, embedded in it this idea of unity. And it begins back not only where I read in verse 16, but begins back in, in verse 12 and and the unity that needs to be there uh, uh, with, the, with those in leadership and the body itself. And, and, and dealing with disunity as uh, described in verses 14 and 15. And then there's this kind of internal unity which talks about rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks. This attitude of dependence to God. And then we get to this aspect of verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. And we looked, about, we looked at what quenching means, and it, it really has uh, both a, a subtle and a graphic uh, description. One is to dampen, uh, to, to put a light shade around, to, to put it on the dimmer switch. And yet, and yet there's another type of um, uh, connotation to the word quench, and it means to suffocate, to choke the life out of. And, and we looked at its uh, correlating passage or cor- uh, cor- corollary passage or term, and that would be the idea of grieving the Spirit of God. Grieving the Spirit of God. As if to say that mere human beings can have such a profound effect on God himself, can wound God. Now, I'd like to use this as a, a point to give you um, a story to introduce what we want to do the rest of the hour. We were in the Bahamas a couple of years ago, and I used to scoff at those who would go to the Bahamas and preach, and then we went to the Bahamas, and, and now I don't scoff at them anymore. <laughs> and we, we were on this uh, boat, uh, uh, like a speed boat, you know, and the, the brothers there were taking us. We were skipping across the, the Caribbean, you know. I didn't know you could do that. And so we, we had the young people in the in the front of the boat, and I don't know what you call that, but in the front of the boat, and, and I was lifting Gracie up through the window so she could be with her siblings, and as we skipped across the little ocean, the, the boat, the vessel went down, and as it went down, so did I, and the corner of this uh, glass door caught my, uh, my chest and caused a reasonably large gash and a huge bruise, and I wanted to say that's where the shark attacked me, but I didn't. I wanted to look bad. And, and so that night we're in meeting at the uh, Bible chapel there. You know, the, it's a long, narrow room. And uh, we're about halfway back. And Gracie is sitting, she's here. She's much younger than just sitting next to me. And she was kind of doing little girl things, kind of singing to herself, humming to herself, throwing her head, her ponytails back and forth. And she was just re- having a good time. And the next thing I know, she leans over to the left And then she throws her head to the right, and her head perfectly plants itself right on my wound, my shark bite. And I go, oh, oh. She had put her head from there to my knee. She lifts up off the knee, looks at me with incredible horror, And bursts out in an abundance of tears, throws her head back on my lap. I look at my wife and she said, What did you do to our baby? (laughs) Now what was so what was what taught what this taught me was that I have a little girl who cares deeply if she pains her father. Did you know that I'm not so sure that we care as deeply of whether we pain our father or not. But the words quench and the words grieve are words that actually that hurt, wound our father in heaven. The idea of grieving itself means to, to cause pain and, and yet, when we talk about quench and its corollary concept, grieving, sometimes I, I think we fail to understand that this is personal with your Father in heaven. And therefore, we ought to take a little bit more time to ponder this, we gave three illustrations last night. There was one about the independence of Saul, and as expressed in 1 Samuel 13. One was about Saul's failure of really true repentance, and the other one we could only mention briefly. It was a, a hiding sin, or really the hypocrisy of David. Everything was fake in First and Second Samuel chapter 11. He faked his interest in Uriah. He faked a battle strategy. He, felt he faked celebrating with his fellow soldier. He faked a concern for the uh, loss of troops uh, when the battle plan was carried carried out. He faked an interest in Bathsheba, really only wanting to marry her so that the pregnancy would be covered up. He faked everything. David looked like the best guy ever. Oh, David, you married the widow of the fallen soldier. What a great king! And let me tell you, that quenches the Spirit of God, that type of hypocrisy. And so what we want to do today, oh, uh, before I go on, I want to emphasize to you just how desperate God wants this quenching thing, these examples of such, to go away. Let me show you some scriptures that illustrate this. Look in in Jeremiah. I put it up here. Perhaps maybe time would be better if I I read it. Uh, But I want you to see this. This is Jeremiah chapter 7. It's the plea of God's heart to deal with this quenching aspect of the Spirit of God. Look at what he says. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God. Notice how God is wanting an undoing of the quenching, suffocating aspect of their behavior. Uh, You will be my people. Walk in all the ways that I've commanded, that it may be well. Yet you did not obey or incline your ear. That's very Saul-like, isn't it? That's very David-like. But you followed the counsels and dictates that that independent spirit we talked about of your own heart i have sent you all my servants the prophets rising daily but you did not hear these are big things god wants to to have a, a resolution of this quenching like disposition in his people notice this psalm 32 9 the plea of god's heart do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding. What does that mean? That means that they will only do what they have to do when forced to do. There was a time when I was about five years old, and we went to my cousin's farm in Illinois. I uh, wanted to ride a horse, and, and the horse was about... 20,000 times bigger than me. And so they put my little pint-sized body on this big animal. And the adults do what adults do. They began to talk. And my horse began to walk. (laughs) Nobody noticed that he and I, the horse and I, were walking away. And he went this way. And he went that way. And he went that way. And he made a big rectangle. And I'm going, hey, stop, slow down. (laughs) Cease, Quit. And I couldn't get that animal to stop to save my life. The animal went all the way around the, court, the, 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 the little yard, barnyard they had, came right back to where we started, and I said to the family, how do I get this thing to stop? And my cousin reached over and said, you just pull right here. And boy, I tell you, that big, that big freight train came to an immediate gentle halt. That illustrates to, this, to me this idea, God doesn't want you to be someone that has to be directed by a pull on the mouth, or better yet, a tug at the nose. God would want you to come fully and completely on your own so that all you have to see is his eye and catching his eye You would be directed by Him. God would say this in the passage of about Jerusalem when the Lord Jesus walked upon the earth. I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. Do you hear it? Quenching the spirit of God. Quenching is, if I may, the heart of God is such a deeply personal matter. And he wants desperately, as evidenced by these Old Testament illustrations, he would want desperately to have that reversed in our day. So let's, let's, let's move forward. These are the aspects of quenching the spirit that we'll talk about the, over the next day or two. And they are the next couple of verses in the passage. Do not despise prophecies test all things, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. Now, we will today, or this morning, get through this one, and maybe part of this one, and this would be, of course, an ongoing series in that matter. Uh, going back to the text, it says in verse 20, do not despise the prophecies. Now, what does the word despise mean? Well, it, it's, it's, a, it's a word that uh, um, uh, is, is, as you would expect, to, to have no regard, to count something something as useless. Have you ever gotten one of those Christmas gifts? You look at it. You go, oh, that's so nice. <laughs> what is it? In your mind, you're going, this is useless. Did you even look at my list? Right? I have this funny story. My, my father, uh, back, back before, uh, I don't know if the young people today know this, but, but ladies' boots were popular in the 70s you know and and they would get these and you'd zip them up and so they've come back in style right so my dad one year got my mother this this Christmas gift and it was like these little plastic things that you put in the leg part of the boot and it would expand and so it make it look like the boot had a leg in it and then you'd hang it up in your closet now my mother she was Japanese okay they don't sell that in Japan And so I'll never forget that morning that she opened that Christmas gift, and we pulled it out of the box. My mother, she's very good at hiding things. She's Japanese. She goes, oh, I love it. This is so wonderful. It's so beautiful. I can't believe it. And my brother and I were going, she has no idea what that is now. Yeah. You know, for about two decades, we hung on to those. things. We never used them. We never used them. Right? This is the idea here. It's, it's, it's beautiful, It look, but it's not, it's not useful. And you have this attitude about it in that particular way. There's something, uh, you, you, you have a, a further expansion of this, that it's beneath you. It has uh, a no intrinsic value. You would just as soon get rid of it. It's beneath one's consideration, and you therefore reject it with an attitude. <laughs> what a piece of junk. And this is the idea of despise. It's what it means, disrespectful, condescendingly. Now, when we talk about it this way, what exactly are we condescending? What exactly are we rejecting with disrespect? And it's the revealed word of God. The prophecies here literally means an utterance, by an uh, inspired uh, utterance or prophecy. Now, that's lolnida, which... which uh, 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 has uh, some good commentary, but as was mentioned, BDAG, you didn't think I was going to mention BDAG, but I did. I yeah, thank you, yes. But BDAG says it's usually, of course, in, in conjunction with spiritual things. In other words, it's, as you could imagine, the revealed word of God. So there's an attitude that actually looks at God's word and has a sense of, eh, it's nice, but, you know, it's kind of in the way. That's the attitude. That quenches the Spirit of God. Why would it quench the Spirit of God? Well, you have to do a little cross-reference work with this idea. I've put it before you. You don't have to necessarily turn to it because this is not the heart of what we want to discuss today. It says, do not despise the prophecies, God's revealed word. How can this quench the Spirit of God? That's easy. Remember this verse in Ephesians 5.19, it says, be filled with the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, now, just, just in case you're wondering what that word filled means, um, uh, there's a guy named Dwight Pentecost. Now, what a great name. Yeah, I, you know, I don't believe in that, like, you know, Calvinism thing, but... If I did, he'd have to be saved with a name like Pentecost, right? That's incredible. Anyway, so what happened was he writes this book on the Holy Spirit. And in the book on the Holy Spirit, he actually gives a great description to this word filled. And the word filled is, comes from, in, in, in Dwight Pentecost's description, Dr. Pentecost, this idea of the nautical world where the sail of the ship would have the uh, uh, filling of the breeze that would come across the Mediterranean Sea. And so as the, the breeze would come across the Mediterranean Sea, the sail would be dangling and and lifeless and totally useless until the wind would catch every square inch or centimeter of that fabric and, and suddenly be captured by the full force of the gales of the Mediterranean Sea. And this is the picture, the word picture of the idea filled. The Spirit of God comes in and is able to control you so that his full effect is upon you in a way that preserves your integrity of personality, your integrity of spiritual gift, your integrity of who you are. And yet you and the Spirit of God are are so joined that there's a seamlessness to your your existence in a sense. There is a, a oneness, and this is what the Lord Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Whatever you see, I, I, I do, my Father does, and vice versa. You can't tell the difference. This is the idea. You can't tell the difference. And so being filled with the Spirit of God has a very unique connotation. Now, it will produce in your heart, as it says in Ephesians 5.19, melodious song. You know, I, I, really, think, I really think we have to be careful today because There's a lot of songs that we love and we sing, and I I respect them greatly, and I enjoy them. But there's there's an aspect where it needs to come because the Spirit of God has so filled your soul, right? Now, the sister passage here, Oops. The sister passage is in Colossians 3.16, and in Colossians 3.16, it basically says, be filled with the word of God or the word of Christ. And guess what happens? When that happens, you produce melodious song. So look at this. This is, that's great. This is why we learn mathematics, because if, uh, what is it, A equals B and B equals C that A must be the same as B or C, right? So this is that, what is that called? The transitive principle of mathematics. So being filled with the Spirit is equivalent to being filled with His Word or revelation. So the reason why you can quench the Spirit of God by despising prophecies is because the Spirit of God and the Word of God are linked at the hip. To, be, to despise prophecies or his revelation is basically despising the truth of what the Spirit of God would say. And so now it becomes a personal issue with God. It's not just documentation. It's not words on a page. It's the words that belong to God himself. There is a real, a real offensiveness that's involved. Now, when we say that, you have to say, well, Steve, I don't, I, I'm at a Bible conference. If I despise the word of God, how was how that true? Because here I am at a Bible conference and, and, and I, I'm listening to God's word. Well, that's a good question, but let's, let's see if we can look back in the Old Testament and another example from the life of Saul that sort of demonstrates what I'm talking about. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel chapter 14. Now, you might have guessed that 1 Samuel 13, 14, and 15, and last night I referred to chapters 13 and 15, that these three are kind of a trilogy that uncover the heart and soul of the life of King Saul. And when you do that, you see in chapter 13, Saul's independent spirit. In chapter 15, you see Saul's not only disobedient spirit, but a, re, a refusal to be truly repentant. and chapter 14, you see something that sort of um, is the glue to the whole trilogy. Now, um, I've summarized some of the key events because uh, I can't read them all, and then we'll read specifically the ones we want to see. Um, As you might recall, uh, this was Jonathan and the Armor Bearer. Do you remember this? I I don't know what this Armor Bearer's name was, but I would give anything to be that guy, right? (laughs) Right? And, and so they're over there. Saul, he's back in his hometown sitting, as it says, under a pomegranate tree. Why a pomegranate tree? I have no idea. But nonetheless, he's under the pomegranate tree, not doing what a, a, a spiritual-minded man like uh, Jonathan would have done. And so Jonathan says to his armor bearer, hey, you know, why don't we go over to the Philistines? You know, God can save by few or by many. Now I have news for you, folks. We are the few, okay? And I think God can still give us victory. And so he goes over there and, he's, and, he, and he says, now listen, if they call us up to the little ridge then God has given them into our hands. I had no idea how he knew that, but he was taking God at his word because God had promised them victory. And, and if they want to come down to see us, then we know that God has not given them into our hands. And so what did they have to do? They had to crawl on their hands and knees. And if you ever look at this, if you ever look at some of the places where they were, it, it's not just sort of a low, gentle hill. It's steep cliffs. They had to scale up the rocks. And you know what that is when you're scaling up the rock, you get to the top. Oh, <laughs> I need some oxygen, right? So they get up there, and within minutes, 20 Philistines are eliminated. Do you know what you have to be to have... Uh, what is it, a ratio of, of 1 to 10? Do, do you know how agile you have to be? How quick on your feet? How, how swift with a sword? And there's just two and there's 20 of them. Obviously, that could not have been done by human effort. It had to have been done by the hand of the Spirit of God guiding and leading the hands of those two men. Well, this causes a tremendous uh, uh, a shift in the battle. By, by one small battle, the whole Philistine army gets unnerved, and they think, oh, no, we're getting attacked. And then God sends uh, uh, the earthquake that happens, which is kind of like saying, <laughs> your little gods are nothing. And they get even more unnerved. Now, now scouts are out across the, the, the little, uh, little valley there, and they're looking, scouts for Saul, and they go, hey, boss. I think the Philistines are on the move. And the boss goes, well, which way are they moving? And he's probably from New York. And he goes, he goes, they're going away. No way. That's my Chris Schroeder imitation. All right? And so what happens is they call a roll call, and they realize that, that Jonathan and his aura bearer are not there. Now, turn to chapter, uh, where were we? chapter 14, and I want you to begin reading with me, and let's read, let's see, uh, I think it would be best if we read beginning in verse 17. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, now call roll and see who is gone. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, who was, of course, the priest, priest, bring the ark of God here, for at that time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now it happened, while Saul talked to the priest, that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, "Uh, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were assembled with him, and they went to the battle, and indeed every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was great confusion. Now why do I bring this up? Well, Saul, as I mentioned here, he calls for the ark, he gets everything there, the priest, he's going to call upon God, he's going to seek revelation from God. That's the whole purpose of bringing the ark over. David did this many times, usually the ephod. What should I do? Where should I go? Should I tack him from this direction or the other direction? That's how David did his business. Saul came so close. The, the source of God's communication or God's revelation was right there. The priest was there. There was going to be an, an, an inquiry of God, perhaps. How should I go about this? What's going on? And yet, The surrounding scenario, the Philistines and their noise and their retreat, the yells, the screams, the earthquake, the the, the perhaps noise of thunder was so distracting that Saul said, no, we don't have time for this. Just, just, Just stop. You know what that is? That's despising the revelation of God, isn't it? That's exactly what that is. And so, what did they do? They then take the Ark of the Covenant away. They rush to the battlefield. Doesn't this sound like some of our days, doesn't it? They rush to the battlefield. And what happens in that moment, and I believe because Saul did not seek the face of God, Saul makes an incredible rash vow that limits the people of God from having full victory. And he says, of course... No one can uh, eat meat until uh, all the Philistines are are routed and that caused a tremendous problem in chapter 14. Now, I have to say that this is kind of kind of a vivid example, right? How, How many of us in our daily lives have gotten up and we said, well, I'm going to I'm going to spend a little time with the Lord. And then what happens is we we sort of have a few things, unexpected moments and, and or maybe the events of the day are on your mind as soon as you wake up. Maybe it's the meetings you have. Maybe it's the people you have to meet. Maybe it's the emails you have to write or the tickets you have to buy. It's so heavy upon you That what happens is you go, oh, oh, I just don't have time to open up the word of God. Your heart's not right, it's not receptive, you're not submissive, you're not attentive to the things of God, and you just put it aside and you rush to the battle. Has anybody done that besides me? (laughs) I have to tell you a funny story. I I, I, I should pull up the article, but I was rushing to to catch my flight to go preach somewhere. (laughs) It's always when we're preaching somewhere, right? And it was a bad morning. I was rude to my children, rude to my wife. We jumped in the car, and I'm pretty much breaking the laws of travel by flexing the laws of physics. And I am weaving in and out of traffic, and we are pushing the limits of all kinds of things. And right then, on speakerphone, this really good friend of ours, Scott DeGroff, calls me up. He has no idea what's going on. He goes, hey, Steve, how you doing? I'm doing okay. I was lying. He said, are you okay? I said, well, yeah, I'm kind of late for my flight. He goes, oh, well, let me just pray. Okay. And so this is how Scott DeGroff prays. He goes, Lord, like he wasn't in the room, in the car, but I could just see him holding up his hands. Lord, I pray that, that Steve would make it to his plane on time and, and that cars would move out of the way and the lines at the ticket counter would be non-existent. And he, I pray he would get to his flight early. You know what you do when you're in that situation and you're not really looking to seek God either in prayer or his word. You go, okay, okay, thank you, thank you, okay, gotta go, bye-bye, thanks, bye. And man, I get back to it and we are, we, we wheel in, I blow kisses to the family and the kids, I jump out of that car, I walk right up there, I go right to that TSA line and guess what, no one's there. I go right through, never been through that line faster in my life. I rush over to my gate. I stand right there. The plane wasn't delayed. But I was five minutes early. The only thing I left at home was my faith in the word of God. I tell you that because that's my personal history of how I despised the seeking, the presence of God and his word. Now I am pretty sure that there's about a hundred of us in this room that have done that same thing. There is... No way that we can do that and expect us to A, survive, and B, bear fruit. That we let the pressures that's going on around us. Do you know that's exactly what the enemy wants to do? He wants to flood your heart with so many anxieties of what has to be accomplished and all the things that need to happen in a sequence of time and the right way. And that the, the, you know, in order for you to hit the end of the day and reach all the targets, you've got to shoot the arrow through four or five different hope, si- hoops simultaneously. And you can't do that. You've got to make it happen. And you know what happens? You get all in a flutter. And whether you mean to or not, you end up despising, treating with disrespect the revelation of God from his word. The, res- the revelation of God that is the pre- uh, being in prayer in the presence of God and how he brings his word to you in those moments of quiet prayer. Now I know, I am not the only one that does that. But I'm very sure I lead the pack in doing that. Now, so when we talk about personally, I want to just mention, this is just some points of application here, my own longings. Sometimes I, I would say to you that, that I, I, I let my schedule and my plans or my priorities uh, uh, sort of, it, it sort of reveals how much I despise the word of God. My own choices. You know, this is a big thing. In, in our day of, of these little things we call phones, uh, smartphones. You know, the, it's really an oxymoron, isn't it? It's an ox and a moron. It, it teaches us that it, we call it a smartphone, but we play dumb games. Doesn't that strike you as odd? Okay, you ever play Angry Birds. Yeah. And we watch that. And we go, oh, look at that. I knocked down four. What are you doing? What are you doing? Right? Anybody, anybody here ever play Wordscapes? Everybody goes, what's that? That's, it's like a crossword puzzle on steroids on your phone. Okay? And I'm not kidding. I can waste an hour. Oh, just one more. Oh, just one more. Oh, I know this word. I know it. I know it. And you know what? Next thing you know, everything that you had to give to God for that moment of time where your full attention was devoted to your heavenly Father is evaporated. That's called despising prophecies. That's what that is. Despising the revelation of the word of God. The pressures that's all around you, as I mentioned. How else can we do it corporately? Not just personally, corporately. Well, there's two aspects to this. When I think this through, I think there's how the communicators can despise the word of God. How do we do that? Well, sometimes, does any speakers here ever wing it? Wing it. You know. Oh oh uh, uh yeah uh, uh, I uh, um let me um the, yeah I think yeah I I got something to share No listen um a sharing of the word of god conference ministry preaching in the local assembly is always an outgrowth of what you are doing Pretty much all the time, saturating yourself in God's word. And not just saturating yourself for knowledge base, but for obedience sake. This is the idea. And it is our heart that must obey. I tell you, communicators of the word of God in this local assembly or with the gospel itself have to be individuals that saturate themselves in the word of God so that the spirit of God can take his word and paint it all over the inner, core, inner recesses of your soul. Failure there. Failure there is despising the revelation of God. But how about the audience? Sometimes we as the audience can despise the word of God. How many of us have generated our to-do lists while Chris was preaching? Okay, maybe when I was preaching. But I know that happens. Why, how do I know? Because I've done it. How many of us have have actually... have, have made it less of a priority to be in attendance. We do this in various ways. Well, I'll just catch it. I'll just, ca- I'll just catch it on the radio. I'll just catch it uh, because it's inconvenient. You know, one time I got, a, I got a letter from somebody in the assembly many years ago. You would never know. It said, why do we have to start meeting so early? I can't get up in the morning, uh, you know, to hear God's word. Really? Really? It's not convenient for me. It's, it's, a, it's a pain a pain." You know, that's what the priests of the Old Testament said. They said, you've treated my things as contemptible. Well, how have we done that? Because you've despised my word. The priest should know the word of God. You know, we don't have an appetite for that. Maybe because we're either overfed or we're unexercised. Either way, we have a sense of, of disdain for the word of God. Uh, is, is, is that right? This is how we can do this as an audience. Say, now... I would ask you these simple questions. But are you, in your family or in your own life, are you the rate-limiting step to quenching the Spirit of God? Maybe, maybe you haven't thought of it this way. Maybe you haven't, haven't pictured it this way. But maybe my attitude has corrupted things so that I actually treat God's Word with a sense of disrespect oh steve i would never do that you know we're brethren we're men and women of the book yeah the book that stays closed on the bookshelf you know it's a lot of work to do that i find that you know when i i i have some days where i can study i find i figure out 20 things to do before i can actually get up to my office and crack open the word i don't know about you but I'm the rate-limiting step. Maybe you're the rate-limiting step for your assembly. Maybe you're the rate-limiting step because of your uh, appreciation or lack thereof of God's word. I would suggest to you that although we have a reputation of being those who know the book, I don't think we in this generation, and I mean myself, have been those who have lived up to that reputation. I would say to you that quenching the spirit of God is maybe on my watch, isn't it? It's easy to do. You see, when you're an enemy and you're trying to perform sabotage, you don't ever tell the one you're trying to sabotage you're coming. Otherwise, it's ineffective. You try to be stealth. You try to to throw at you everything that makes you think it's a normal obstacle when in reality it's obstacles cast in front of you by the enemy. So I've found that when I've tried to sit down and study the Word of God, I've had interruptions ten in a row. How come I didn't have interruptions half an hour ago? Right? That happens. Right? I get texts. I get phone calls. I get dogs. I get cats. I just think, you guys are possessed. And yet, I think we have to be tenacious with our appreciation and seeking the word of God. You know, I've asked the Lord to do that in my life. And what he did in my life is he would wake me up early. And it's the kind of waking up early that I can't go back to sleep. You know, so it's like just, Bing! you know, like the light hit Peter in the dungeon, you know, the light woke him up. Okay, I'm up, I'm up already. And I tell you, the Lord has been doing that to me. And I've had some wonderful times literally in our closet with the Lord Jesus. Do not despise prophecies. Do not treat the revelation of God with a sense of, how shall we say, less than its importance. All right, we have just a few minutes. I know we're supposed to end at noon, but Davy Dixon gave me like five more minutes, so I'm gonna take it. Yeah, I know, I know. Listen, listen, bro. You, you gotta bribe them. Okay? You gotta bribe them, man. And go second. Okay. Go back to the text. I just want to introduce this because we do have much ground to cover. Look at what it says here. Test all things. What does that mean? Well, it's another way failure here would quench or suffocate the Spirit of God. And the word test is simply this. It's a critical examination. A critical examination of something to determine its genuineness. Now, I, want to, I want to try to illustrate this in our closing moments together and then we'll continue this this afternoon. Um, you know, when patients would come in to see me in the emergency department, there's all kinds of ways that we can examine you. You might, you might recognize this. If I may, if you have a rash, I usually stand over here and say, yeah, that's a rash, absolutely, I recognize it, right? But an astute physician will probably come over and say, oh, well, let me look at your arm, oh, yes, yes, yeah, it's got red base, it's got blisters, it's got, ah! No, you don't do that, but, you, you know, I'm, I'm actually giving critical examination to this particular malady, rather than that, how should we say, um, looking from afar. What he's saying here is you do a critical examination. Now, the word was used in, in the days of, of Paul's writing to, uh, in the world of metallurgy. Now, I, I'm not a metallurgist. My brother is, and... Um, and when you, when you take raw ore out of the earth and you, and you want to get it down to its component, raw materials, some of you know this much better than I, the old way of thinking about it was you have to melt it, let it cool, scrape off the layers or tip over the, the melted object, uh, gently touch it and let the layer of, of that one rare element fall onto the, onto the plate and then you take it out and you melt it again. And each layer is supposed to, to you know, as it's boiled, boils up to the top, it has a different density than the other layers. And you just shave off each layer. And you do this process multiple times. And it's a critical element. You're wanting every particle of each layer to be removed from the clump. Right? This is what he's saying. You do an analysis of those things that are in front of you with tremendous attention to detail tremendous evaluation it's a critical eye the only way you have a critical eye is you got to know what to look for and this is what chris was describing today he was describing it in a very colorful fashion that when we talk about the doctrine of God, you've got to know what to look for and therefore what not to look for, which is, what is false, that old idea of the counterfeit bill. We don't teach you what the counterfeit bill looks like. We teach you what the r- real bill looks like so you can always identify that which is false. This is the point. And when he comes to this uh, aspect, he says in no uncertain terms, you can suffocate the spirit of God and thus the word of God by failing to critically examine what's before you. And thus, it's a call upon our souls. It's desperately important for failure. Here means that we just take the Spirit of God and all that He is, and this is amazing to me, and we just sort of brush Him aside. Okay, we're going to stop there, and we'll continue this same thought this afternoon and uh, hopefully get through this particular phrase. I know I speak for Chris and myself that it's, um, it's a real privilege to be here, isn't it, Chris? Amen. Yeah, it's a real privilege for us to be here together. That's a real privilege, too. That was a mistake by the elders. <laughs> yes, yes. <Just> <laughs> we were together at one other conference, weren't we? They never asked us. I know. <laughs> they never asked us back. <laughs> Those poor people. Anyway, uh, we just want to say thank you. And in that same idea of thanks, let's give thanks for the food, and we'll enjoy that together. Our Father, we we come to you this morning having been in the Word of God, but it's much more important that the Spirit of God continues his teaching ministry in our souls after we say amen. For we believe that's when the real work of, of your cultivating and, and instructing and, and convicting really happens. It's the Spirit of God's unseen moments of conversation to our souls. And we ask that that would continue. Father, we, we, we want to pause to gather some physical nourishment to our bodies so that our minds could be continued, can be uh, renewed in the things of the Lord. But Father, we would be remiss if we simply went forward and didn't turn around and say, thank you, Father. Thank you that you have seen fit to provide us for spiritual and, yes, physical nourishment. And you raised up laborers who, Father, I saw them. They, they, they worked themselves to the bones just making this ready for us to enjoy. They've sacrificed for us, Father. They have demonstrated the heart of the Lord Jesus who sacrificed so that others would have much. I ask you to bless them back richly in in ways they cannot measure, both tangible and intangible. We pray that you would bless this assembly in this way, same way too. Both with tangible fruit and intangible fruit. Souls saved, souls discipled, and souls sent out. Father, we pray in this way. We thank you for this. I'm very grateful. You you put a high priority on, on having supper together, as it says. You have a high priority on, on that camaraderie and union and love and appreciation over food together. You just, you just seem to really set that as a, as a pinnacle of, of closeness. And we want to thank you for this moment where we can enjoy that together today. In Jesus' name, amen.